Hello, welcome to the Humanity Leadership Podcast. I'm David Wheatley and we're here to talk all things leadership. My guest this week is John Clark, and John is currently the President Chief Executive Officer of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I know him from some of his past history, but I'm going to give him a chance to introduce that. Welcome, John. Thank you, David. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, join in the podcast today, and I uh, look forward to having uh, interesting discussions around leadership, and it's, it's really nice to uh, get topics like this out into the world. So thanks for having me. And you're talking to us from your farm down there in Virginia. So uh, from a farm in Virginia to a tree farm here in, in Michigan, we're, we're in good shape. So what I normally do is ask guests to just give me the, the 30 second bio uh, of your career. What got you to where you are? Yeah, you know, I had always an interest in law enforcement and uh, my very first uh, job was in law enforcement all the way back in the uh, the Border Patrol, but most of my career was with the U.S. Marshal Service, uh, 28 uh, years there. And then, uh, you know, I, I um, uh, left government, uh, retired, and uh, went to the for-profit world and uh, spent some time with a defense contractor, almost five years uh, with them, and uh, then uh, moved on to where I am now as the uh, president and CEO for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So, I've had the kind of the unique opportunity to work in, in the in the three sectors of the work world there, and uh, each one has been a learning lab for me, for sure. Well, uh, that's a, a fascinating career, and I, I want to kind of touch on a few of those aspects because uh, you're a career deputy U.S. marshal, who then was presidentially appointed first to be the marshal in Virginia, and then to be the director of the marshal service. Yes, you know, the, the unique thing about the Marshal Service that many uh, may not know is uh, going all the way back to 1789 when George Washington appointed the first marshals, uh, that tradition continues. So I had the, a, a, a unique opportunity, I say, because I have no um, uh, political connections, as you might imagine, that you need to become a political appointee. Uh, but I became the presidentially appointed marshal uh, in Virginia. And then uh, not long after that, uh, was asked to uh, serve uh, under the, uh, the Bush administration as the, the uh, appointee as director of the U.S. Marshal Service. So I was, uh, uh, I had actually come through the ranks, so the, the first one to do that. Yeah, and, and I hear we're joined by your dog in the background, so we'll welcome them later on. So that's always good to hear. And, um, you know, we had the opportunity, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that history because I had the opportunity under your leadership of supporting the first ever training for presidentially appointed U.S. Marshals that went beyond here's a badge and here's a gun. Yes, you know, uh, everything that we do in the senior leadership positions uh, is, is really built on uh, good education and awareness and continual growth. I think that's critical. Uh, my life, I think, is a, a reflection of that. Uh, always uh, learning. Uh, you never really... Uh, arrive at a leadership place, you are, you should always be learning and developing. And that's why it was critical then. Um, and I, I hope that it still continues that, uh, you know, the new executives in the organization and the Marshall service at the time received and got valuable training and, and, uh, and development. And I think that's a good way to get them started on that journey. 
Well, I appreciate the opportunity. So what I wanted to ask you about the Marshalls, though, was you went from being one of the guys, you know, a flat foot cop, <laughs> doing that, to being the boss, and not just the boss, but the kind of presidentially appointed boss. What were some of the things that you had to bear in mind as you, you came in one day as the, with the, that director title behind you? Well, you know, David, it was a, it was an unexpected uh, landing place for me. Unexpected meaning never uh, in my career life did I ever think that I would be appointed as a director. Uh, in fact, I sometimes refer to myself as the accidental director. Um, some uh, are may not be aware, but actually to this day, I've, I really don't know who in the uh, political world uh, brought my name forward to be uh, brought in to be appointed as the, as the director. Uh, so there was some um, surprise, much surprise in that, but it was a journey. I always think in your career life where uh, you can, pro uh, uh, you can kind of plan for and project uh, where you might think you're going to be, but uh, there are times in your your lifetime and your and your leadership journey, uh, where you uh, you are stepping up to a level that is uh, maybe a little bit scary and a little bit frightening, uh, because uh, in some respects, if you stop and think about it, uh, I was not of a of the pedigree of the type of the model that would typically be appointed uh, to that kind of a job, and uh, coming through the ranks uh, gave me though, on the other hand a very unique set of skills that I think were valuable uh, in the job. For example, uh, many of the people who uh, look to leadership uh, want to see uh, one of the things is credibility. credibility. Are, is that leader credible? Do, uh, do the things that they do, the things that they say bring a, a level of confidence and are they, are they credible? And, and having been a deputy marshal before I became director, meant that I had experienced every single duty and responsibility, uh, including some of those were uh, in leadership ranks that did prepare me to uh, be a top leader uh, and understanding the, uh, the inner workings more so than any other director probably ever could have or would have. So I, I had an, a, a unique advantage, even though I was not again from a typical appointed director. And uh, so when I talked to the rank and file and then at the troop level, they, um, I think they gave me a lot more grace and a lot more pass on things that might have been a mistake or something that didn't turn out so well uh, because they knew that I had walked in their shoes. So were there some things that you did? Because a lot of folks that I get to work with get elevated from working as part of a team to being the leader of that team. You had that on the largest scale. What are some things you had to do to, to start things off to, to help people see that you weren't the same old pal that you were hanging out with, but, but you also wanted to maintain that connection? Yes, there's, uh, you know, you, you really are transitioning from uh, a much different role. When uh, the very first day I walked into the director's office and, uh, and you, you kind of think of the magnitude of what is uh, before you. Uh, there were things that I would need to do and learn uh, that I had not experienced before. Congressional testimony, for example, uh, being able to uh, meet with members of Congress or high-ranking uh, government officials. Um, but I had always learned along the way, uh, if you uh, maintain a, a sense of humility and a sense of uh, 
of trust with your workforce and you, you project that level of confidence, which I tried to do, uh, that in the long run, uh, you, will, you will find that people will be accepting of that. Uh, they, will, they will trust your, uh, your instinct and your direction and your leadership. And so I found that uh, you know, over the course of time, uh, you just have to, uh, in, in many respects, still be the person that you always were. Uh, you know, I, I, I've kind of learned along the way, don't try to become something you're not. Uh, be who you are. And uh, I remember saying at my congressional testimony when we were preparing for it, uh, some that were preparing me wanted me to use more sort of politically correct terminology or, or uh, project in, in a different kind of way. And I would say, well, the same person who is here today going through this practice run is going to be the same person who's going to appear in person before the real uh, Judiciary Committee for my testimony. And I said, I, I need to still be that person who I am. And uh, so a lot of that preparation for that role, I think, began years and years ago, and I didn't know it. Uh, but it did help that I came to the job with uh, a background and a confidence that uh, allowed me to quickly uh, sort of, um, you know, assume that role and that duty. Uh, and again, in a much unexpected way, one that I never would have dreamed of. I like the way you just framed that because you're saying, um, I came from a base of authenticity uh, and integrity. You, you see what you get, you get what you see kind of thing. And then the parallel lines of confidence and humility that I have to have both and I have to make sure I keep them both in check with each other. And then the other thing you've, you've said is continually learning uh, and trusting the people around me. So, and demonstrating that trust. And, and so I think that's a real nice set of things that, that can set anybody up to say, hey, if this is the way I am, then it makes life a lot easier than if I try to be somebody I'm not, or I lose one of those two lines of confidence or vulnerability or the, the humility. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, to, uh, to be the director and have that title uh, could, um, could get lost, I think, in, in, in one's mind and thinking, okay, now I have this authority. I have, I'm, a, I'm supposed to be somebody different. And, and I think in, in many respects, what helped me is to not necessarily be different. In fact, um, uh, the, the less that I tended to rely on the title director and was just uh, who I was as a leader in the organization. You know, as I traveled the country and I met with um, deputy marshals in nearly every district in the United States, uh, I learned that they really weren't um, uh, so concerned about the things in inner, inner Washington, the inside the Beltway Washington. Uh, most of the people I led were concerned with what I'd always called the food, water, shelter, things of life. They wanted to know uh, how things were going in the organization from my perspective, primarily as not John the director, but John the deputy marshal. What did I think was going on? How could I help them? What could I do to make sure that, um, you know, their, their work day, their work life was the best it could be? And uh, I, I quickly learned that everywhere I went, I rarely got a question about inside Washington. It was mostly about a uh, town hall meeting would be uh, more about quality of life. And uh, 
And I was able to answer them from that frame reference, that, that, that point uh, to say that I was uh, in their shoes and I kind of knew some of those things that I thought would be, you know, most uh, uh, predominantly on their mind. Right. Just kind of meet people where they're at rather meet than that pretension. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So then you, you retired from the marshal service and after a short uh, five years with the private sector, I'm interested in that next transition because then you find yourself in the nonprofit world. So tell me a little bit about the, the organization you're leading now. Well, I, I have the honor to be uh, the CEO of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, an organization that's about uh, 36 years old now, started by John Walsh, and many know him from America's Most Wanted fame, and started under very difficult and uh, uh, circumstances in that they uh, lost their son, Adam, uh, who was abducted and then found murdered uh, in Florida, where they were residing at the time, back in the early 80s. And so they took that advocacy to build the National Center. And uh, today we have about 367 employees uh, that are working uh, nonstop to find, uh, uh, protect and prevent. That's sort of our, our, our work um, model, uh, finding missing children, doing more prevention work against exploitation and actually trying to um, rescue children from harm in those situations. So it's an interesting, uh, transition to to go from an organization and government where you had a, a, a financial appropriations given to you each year and now in a nonprofit world where you're you're trying to uh, find uh, uh, find uh, sponsors and people who will help you in your line of work and um, you know and then the other transitional piece for me was just uh, looking at our workforce differently uh, at the center we have a a very young workforce. Our average age is around uh, 35. Uh, I probably, you know, swing the average up based on my age, but uh, we also have a predominantly female organization. Um, about 77% of the National Center is, is, uh, is female. So, um, you know, it, and it's a different culture and a different workforce in a nonprofit world. I remember the first day I reported for duty uh, there, uh, because of my government and my, I guess the way I've been wired, uh, I showed up at 7 a.m. in the morning. I thought, well, that's even for me kind of late. Uh, I showed up at 7. I was the first car in the parking garage at the time, other than the people in our call center who are there through the night. And I thought maybe I was in the wrong place for a minute. And then I learned over time that uh, our workforce uh, arrives at different times, there are different schedules, and in a millennial workforce environment, they, they, they report for work when they report for work. There's, there's not a, a clock to be punched, so some might arrive at 8.35, somebody might arrive at 9.05, but it's, it's getting used to leading uh, a workforce that is, uh, it is different, that is more technologically wired and, uh, and in tune. Um, as noted by, uh, you know, one of the common questions I was asked when we were moving to our new headquarters was, uh, you know, will we have a bike rack to park our bikes? Because again, that's a young workforce. They're, uh, they're into exercise. So I've learned a lot. I've had to uh, uh, transition and change uh, my point of view as it relates to leadership of a different workforce in a different model. 
So I think that's fascinating to go from what is, you know, it's changing, but predominantly male world of the martial service uh, that has a very tight structure and, and somewhat underpinnings of some of that military kind of thinking behind it to the flexibility, openness of a majority female nonprofit organization. Uh, what are some of the things that you, know, you said you had to adapt a little bit? What were some of the things that you found you had to learn in order to manage differently in that world? Well, you know, David, sometimes we uh, talk about leadership style, and I think, you know, uh, everybody has one, but I think one important thing is to remember that you should also be flexible and adaptable uh, in your style or what you have done. I mean, as an example, like I said, I grew up and raised in an organization that was, you know, as you pointed out, quite structured, quite chain of command uh, to go um, uh, to uh, from an environment where everybody were referred to you as sir or director and a very, very formal kind of environment to one where everybody calls you John. They don't care that I'm the CEO. Uh, and no one even really cared about my background of where I came from, although some know that. So uh, I had to also learn just to be uh, a little bit more uh, flexible, you know, being um, that uh, a, a new and different workforce is necessarily a, a wrong one. It's, it's just the, it's the 2020 uh, version of what a workforce often is now. It's, it's a compilation of uh, a, younger, uh, a younger generation that is more uh, wired and connected in social media. And um, uh, one of the first things I was approached to, to do was to get on social media and to be able to, and I, it was a foreign language to me, but, but you have to say uh, to yourself, you know, as a leader, you need to be adaptable to that new environment and able to accept it and, and understand it uh, because it, it can't be a, a, a my way or the highway. Uh, I can't, I, I would not ever say, okay, effective immediately, we're all gonna start reporting at 8 a.m. and uh, work till 5 p.m. or something. Uh, it, you have to just adjust to that. Uh, and I think through that process, you have a much more productive and agreeable uh, workforce. The other lesson I learned kind of quickly was um, don't assume that, you know, communication just happens out there. You know, it's important to, uh, to try to reach uh, the workforce in different ways. Uh, in my government time, it was primarily through a town hall meeting, but now in the, in the workforce I lead, uh, we have another, uh, other uh, avenues of, of communication that I use, some of which is by social media. Uh, I sometimes post things on my social media site that are about who I am personally. Uh, the workforce likes to know what I do on my farm. It might be foreign to, again, those of us who grew up in a government structure, you can say, well, who would care about that? But there, the workforce is a different one, but some of the things about how you treat them and respond to them and, and care for them are still the same. You should still recognize that they're human beings coming in. They want and hope for a good, uh, uh, respectable work environment and uh, to do all you can to provide that. I think that's important too, because what you, you're saying is, hey, I've got this career, uh, this, all this credibility, all this stuff coming in. And the first thing I had to do was to adapt to the workforce, which is kind of contrary to the way many leaders see it. As I, the workforce will need to adapt to me. That's why they brought me in. But you're saying, no, I, I saw a, a radically different workforce. 
my job was to adapt to that and bring leadership to that workforce rather than try and change it too much. Yeah, I, I, and I agree, David. I, I think I would have learned very quickly had I tried to just force my way of my old government style uh, with uh, expecting them to call me a certain title uh, would have gone very flat and would have been very destructive to whatever credibility I would have had and have now. So I think that it's important that, um, you know, when you see uh, this leadership uh, model before you that's maybe different is to think about how you can and should adjust to it uh, and change uh, some of your ways and means. Uh, and I, I think for uh, the results that I've seen, at least, I, um, uh, I have found uh, that to be a lot better in a workable model. Uh, for example, when I'm at the center, I, I frequently uh, take my laptop and go up to, uh, we have a, a cafe, kind of a lunch area. Uh, this is of course in the pre-COVID days, but I would go in there in the morning and sometimes in the afternoon and just do work from the cafe because in that place I would see and meet and talk to nearly every employee. They would see and meet and talk to me, not as CEO, but as John. And then we would talk about work things, but we might talk about what their kids are doing, what they're doing uh, on the weekend. They might ask me what I'm doing on the farm. What you're doing there is you're adapting and building uh, trust and, and sort of a comfort level that they see you as the quote unquote boss, but they also see you as a human being right. who will listen to them, who will uh, care for them and provide some level of, uh, uh, you know, some level of humanity about everything they're doing. Because at the center, uh, as you noted, we have a very, very difficult mission, uh, one that is sometimes emotionally very charged. So you have to try to de-escalate that as much as you can. Well, I, I want to get to that bit shortly, but what you're doing takes away a lot of the power dynamic as well. So that the, the idea of having to go to the CEO's office creates a natural tension seeing the CEO sat in the cafeteria, just like we are, it reduces that power dynamic and makes it a lot easier for people to connect around important things. But uh, So I, I love the way you frame that. I, I wanna to get to this last question though, what you just mentioned is you've got people doing this phenomenally challenging mission. Every single day they come in, there's a new list of kids that have gone missing, that are being exploited somewhere. How do you as the leader keep them motivated, keep them engaged, keep them up every day to come back and do this work? that is, could be so soul-destroying if you took it personally? Well, you know, one of the things we started doing, David, a while back was sort of uh, uh, celebrating successes. You know, when you see uh, the difficulties of missing children and some that we even find that uh, might be deceased. Uh, but we also find many mi missing children uh, a, a lot. In fact, the majority, a far majority, uh, we find alive and well. And uh, the same with the child exploitation and putting a lot more emphasis on uh, survivor services. So the employees see uh, also the very good things we're doing. It's, it's not just the harshness of the job, but they're also seeing uh, sort of, a, as we might call it, celebrating the victories, you know, making sure that we're motivated to say, hey, I found this missing child. I stopped this exploitation. I want to go do that again. I want to I be better at how I can do that. Uh, 
The other thing we did uh, and, and continually do is to have some listening sessions, as we like to call it. So we, we're getting from the workforce kind of their, uh, their own ideologies of how we might, as leaders, um, you know, keep changing and adapting to be better at our mission. How can we find more missing children? How can we stop more exploitation and get our prevention materials out there? So it's a, it's a combination, I think, of, of keeping a, a good finger on the pulse of that young workforce, um, but also making sure that all the things we're doing uh, can be seen as having an overwhelmingly positive effect and, and to keep emphasizing the positive effect that we have. And so from time to time, we'll have um, uh, a survivor uh, story that we'll talk about. If it wasn't for you, Nick Mick, you employee at Nick Mick, I wouldn't probably be alive today. Or if it wasn't for you and your work and your effort and getting my picture out there, I would have never been found or, or I would have had um, a lot more hardship. And so when we do those kinds of things, I think the employees feel a, a higher calling and a, a higher connectedness to the work. And uh, they remain motivated to come in every day. We, we actually have a very low attrition rate. And when we have openings for vacancies, we have a, a, a pretty high uh, number of people who apply. And, and the reason being, I think, is people are attracted in the world we're in today to organizations who are doing something that is overwhelmingly good. And uh, that is, thankfully, if there's anything we have left in our, in our uh, system of, uh, you know, of democracy and, and social you know, living is that we, we can see good things and be attracted to them. So you've got people who are naturally working from the heart and you make a point of celebrating the wins and, and raising them up because you know that there's the pressure on a daily basis. The other thing when I work with a lot of nonprofit leaders is the challenge of how do you get them to take vacation? Uh, I had a conversation recently about somebody who said, I can't take vacation because if I'm on vacation, somebody's sleeping homeless and they were burning themselves out a little bit. Is, is there any tips that you have for making sure people re-energize? Well, we push it all the time to make sure people are taking uh, time to uh, decompress. Uh, we actually have a, a an on-site health and wellness program where we, we allow uh, employees who are particularly exposed to some of the more harsher parts of our mission. Uh, you know, uh, at the center, we actually have employees who, who, whose job, as, as horrible as it sounds, have to review and look at and, and handle child sexual abuse imagery, videos, live streaming, uh, so we make sure uh, we have a strong health and wellness program in place. Um, we really push vacations and taking time, especially in this uh, COVID-generated time we're in, is to get uh, refreshment, uh, go outside, do what you can do. And, and, and so that model seems to work. Um, uh, you know, with rare exception, do we have employees that seem to really get you know, uh, really struggling. Uh, so we, we are very, very mindful of it and, uh, and do all we can to make sure, you know, that their, uh, their, their health and wellness is, is given top priority. Well, thank you, John. We've gone a little longer than normal, but I could talk to you about the work you've been doing in, in your career all day long. Uh, you've been referring to it as NICMIC. It's the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. 
And if anybody wants to help, uh, where would they go to help you out? You can go to missingkids.org. That's our website. Just, you know, you can put in your browser, uh, uh, NCMEC, N-C-M-E-C, or National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It'll pop right up. Uh, I also might make a, a plug for, uh, you know, our virtual gala is coming up here uh, Thursday night at 8 p.m. I'm not sure when this podcast will go out. but The day after, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, well, you know, but uh, it, nowadays it'll probably be recorded. But, uh, but there's lots of ways to help out there. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to say that because uh, we have found one of our greatest resources is just the people in the world who care. Uh, the world is made up of, of, of the true different difference makers. I call them the ones who actually do something to go out and make the world a better place. And so we, we'd love to have you join our mission, but thanks for mentioning that. Oh, well, you're welcome. You've got a great social media presence. Uh, I follow what you do on Facebook and it's uh, it's fascinating work. So I encourage people to go to missingkids.org and see what they can do to help out in whatever way they can. John Clark, thank you very much for spending some time with us this afternoon and sharing some of your leadership wisdom. And maybe we'll have to have you back and finish the conversation at a later point. I love you, David. Again, thank you for inviting me and it was a pleasure to join you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Humanity Leadership Podcast. I'm David Wheatley. And we're brought to you by the book, What Great Teams Do Great, available now at all good bookstores. Thanks to Brian Spencer and Finkel for the music. Please share any feedback and suggestions. I'm available through humanity.com. And uh, go to iTunes, like, subscribe, and leave us a review so that other people can find us. In the meantime, until next time we meet, stay healthy.